Glad to see you here this morning worshiping with us as we continue in a series together on uh, studying the, the identity really of Jesus through uh, the book of Mark. Uh, this series for us, we're just taking the time to, to the first couple of weeks dive deep into the prologue of the explanation for the gospel of Mark. And then we're going to show why that prologue is so impactful in the understanding of what uh, Mark represents to us and how it should transform our lives. And so in the beginning of this, we, we talk about the, the relationship this text has to the first century and the way they would have received it so that we can make the application to our lives and why it matters. So we're going to talk about the information of this text for the purpose of transformation and in that, transforma- that transformation answer the question why any of what we read today should, should matter. If you followed along for the first couple of weeks, I am glad you uh, have an understanding of the basis of this text. If you haven't uh, followed along and you want to be a part of this series, I'm going to tell you, if you listen to any messages related to the book of Mark, the first two that we shared together sets the framework for understanding the context of Mark in the right state of mind and exactly uh, what Jesus is expressing through his ministry on earth and what he desires to accomplish. And we saw this together in the very first verse. If, if you brought a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to just open to that, to the passage of Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament as we go through this explanation together on what's happening in this passage. The first, first few weeks, we were really slow into the first 15 verses of Mark just to gather the explanation of this passage. And we're going to slam down the gas a little bit and move a, a little faster today because I want us to look at the broad picture of what's being expressed in Mark now. As he went through the first 15 verses, he, in a very pointed way, explains the idea identity of Jesus, why he's come. And then he sort of hits the pedal to the metal and and proving now what he's proclaimed in these first few verses. And he shares stories for us in these, uh, this opening chapter into chapter two, these short stories of the interaction of, of what Jesus is doing in these moments because of the proclamation he makes in the first 15 verses. And if you've been here for the first couple of weeks, when we read verse one, it should add such imagery to your mind that you really gather the idea of what Mark is saying in this passage of scripture, the beginning of the gospel, the proclamation of a king in victory. That's what the gospel is of Jesus Christ. That name isn't just a name. It's a title. Jesus talking about salvation, Christ talking about the anointed one, the king. So this is the proclamation, the victory of the saving king, the son of God. And this phrase son of God was a borrowed term from Rome. They would refer to Caesar as the son of God. To refer to someone else as the son of God would have been considered treason in Roman society. And yet what Mark is doing in this passage is something that could have gotten his head cut off. But he's declaring the identity of who Jesus is. And it also in all of this points to the deity of Christ. But what you're seeing is a, is a message that is counterintuitive to the Roman society and the proclamation, the representation of what Jesus represents in this world for us. Not just for the time that he walked the earth, but for all time, for all people. Jesus is this victorious, saving king, the son of God. Throughout the story of, of the first 15 verses, you see it demonstrated in the life of John the Baptist. We don't have time to go back through that again. And at the baptism of Jesus himself, as the Father gives the proclamation of who Christ is. And to do that, both John the Baptist and his statement in verse 2, and the Father, when he baptizes when Jesus is baptized in verse 11, both of them speak Old Testament passages in those moments so that the Jewish mind could grab a hold of the identity of who this person is. These passages weren't just pulled out of the dark. They were passages that meant something to Jewish tradition to, to point to the identity of who Jesus is so that we did not miss it. 
And when you see all of these verses, when you get down to verse 15, I would say this is a a verse for us to highlight on, a verse that we're going to sit on today, and a verse that we're going to explain uh, through the, the stories that are shared throughout this passage. But in verse 15, if you've got one of the red letter Bibles, the Bibles that identify when Jesus is speaking, this is the first time now Jesus audibly says anything in the Gospels of Mark. And he says... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the message of this king is the kingdom. And what exactly that means for us as people. Repent and believe, he says. Which means turn from all the other kingdoms in life that you've trusted in. And pursue this king and his kingdom. The idea of repentance is a, a changing, an inward change of the heart and the loyalty of what you have made idol of your life to look towards Jesus and worship. Put your belief or your trust in what this represents. And so what Mark does in the proclamation of Jesus as he gives this introduction, this first 15 verses, is then to go through story after story to quickly just explain how this kingdom makes itself known. And one of the things we pointed out at the end of last week, which I'm going to use as a springboard into this week, is the comment of what happened in Mary's life as Jesus was born. Jesus was born, they followed Jewish tradition, taking him to the temple in order to make sacrifice while they're there. Someone prophesies over Jesus, his name is Simeon, and he gives this outlandish statement to Mary at a time at the birth of Jesus when they should be celebrating, and he gives this sort of negative tone towards all of it, and he says, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, talking to Mary. And we ask the question, why? Why would he do that? And I think the answer is because in our lives, when we face challenges in our world, the, the, the question that we want to ask is, God, where are you? God, do you care? And knowing that Jesus' life would result in the cross, Mary has a reminder from the Lord in her life that even in the depth of that heartache and the pain of that moment, God's there. In fact, God is bigger than our pain. And one of the exciting passages of the Bible to read when it talks about God's kingdom, I think, is Romans chapter 8. Especially if you read chapter 7. <laughs> and in chapter 7, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? Paul talks about, though, he desires in the flesh to live for the Lord, or in the in spirit to live for the Lord in the flesh. He just, he does not live it out. And so he wrestles with the old man. And then when you get to the end of seven, don't ever stop at seven. Please read eight. <laughs> but eight just gives such a, a beautiful picture of, uh, of God's kingdom being bigger than our pain and being present in our pain. And, and it says in Romans eight, if I just pointed to a section in, in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why Paul is saying, whatever you think of in life that may be a hindrance to you in pursuing Jesus and his kingdom, God's kingdom is bigger than that. Nothing separates you. And so you see in the midst of Mary's pain, and the acknowledgement of Romans 
that there is still adversity. God's kingdom is greater. That he works all things together for good, it tells us in Romans. That no pain, no suffering, none of it will be lost in in Jesus. That he reconciles all those things and the demonstration to us ultimately is in the cross. That in the most horrendous form of torture that has existed, in the depth of the worst death that has ever been experienced, as you see Jesus on the cross in agony and separation from the Father, that in the midst of that, there is still victory because Jesus overcame the grave. And he takes the worst of moments in life and he triumphs over all of it. His kingdom is greater. In the midst of our pain and our struggles, his kingdom is greater. Kind of begs the question, then why doesn't Jesus bring the kingdom now if it's so good? The end of Revelation talks about it in 21. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. Why not bring that kingdom now? And its fullness. I think the kingdom is present because of what Jesus has declared. But the fullness of that kingdom and eradicating all sin and suffering, why not bring the kingdom now? In the book of Luke, I'm going to get to Mark in just a second, but in the book of Luke, it records Jesus teaching in a synagogue. It was common to have rabbis from different locations when they would visit a synagogue to allow them to offer a teaching within the synagogue in that day. And Jesus goes in and he offers a teaching and they hand him the scrolls. And he opens up and it's on the book of Isaiah. And then he says this in verse 17, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then listen to this. He began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Could you imagine the audacity? (laughs) The audacity of someone to even utter words like that, that, that he is the one that represents those things found in that passage of Isaiah that he's quoting from. And by the way, it's Isaiah chapter 61. But here's what's interesting. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, he quotes verses 1. And then he quotes the beginning of verse two. And then he stops in the middle of those verses. And what is to follow after this verse is important because it's recognizing something else about what God is going to fulfill. But yet what Jesus is representing in these passages is that what he came to fulfill is is found in Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and a half of verse two, not the second half of verse two. Because the second half of verse 2 is coming later. And this is what it says. And the day of vengeance of our God. In fact, if you remember, the, we've talked about this, but the last book that's written in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. It was the last historical book written for the people of Israel. And the last two chapters of the book of Malachi talks about a forerunner who's to come. And that forerunner who's to come would be John the Baptist. In in chapter 3, it told us about John the Baptist coming to to pave the way for the king and his kingdom, make straightest paths. But it also tells us in chapter 4 something else about this one who is to come or what he is to come before. It says, behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah, which was John the Baptist, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
And so what it's saying about us in the kingdom of God is that God, God does not love sin. And God is good. And in order to be good, God is just. Because no one in the right mind would ever look at someone who was unjust and ever call them good. Within our culture, if a judge does not judge justly, doesn't uphold the laws, if he doesn't bring justice to those who've had wrongs brought against them, no one would ever look at that judge and say, you are good. And with Jesus, the same is true. And what he's beginning to recognize and asking the question, why doesn't he bring the kingdom now? Well, the answer is simple. It's because the God that we know is, is just and he is good. And if he were to bring the kingdom now, he would bring his justice with it. And we also see about this God is that he's gracious. In fact, the apostle Paul in the book of Acts in chapter 20 and verse 24 referred to the gospel as the gospel of grace. And what Jesus represents to us at this time with his kingdom is a place of reconciliation to the king of which we do not belong. Because we're lawbreakers, kingdom violators, opposed to God in need of reconciliation. And so God, it tells us in Romans chapter 2, his kindness leads us to repentance. That God is, in 1 Peter 3, that he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And so the, the delay of his kingdom is a place for us to find us sitting upon his grace, the gospel of grace, the pronouncement of victory and the reconciliation to the king. The delay of his kingdom is for the benefit of us. And finding ourselves connected to him. And you think of the declaration that Jesus has made in this passage in Luke. And what he said in the first 15 verses in Mark. I mean, there's not very many, very many ways to label Jesus according to what we've seen together. Some people in this world call him a, a moral teacher. He's just a good teacher. But when you read the Gospels, Jesus never gives us any room to ever put that label upon him. I mean, you got three options if, you, if you've read more than a carpenter or anything written by Lee Strubles that relates to Jesus. They identify, or, or even uh, C.S. Lewis, all skeptics, all three of those guys, skeptics, that came to study about Jesus and, and learn about Jesus. And they say this, there, there are only three options when it comes to Jesus. He's either nuts, he's a liar, or he's Lord. There is no other way around it. And the first 15 verses of Mark provide such an incredible punch of, of his identity that it only gives you one of those places to choose as it relates to who he is and his king, as, as presenting him king in a kingdom. He's look at these passages and he said to us, he's, he's Lord of a kingdom and at the same time he's suffering servant. He, he's the saving king and he tells us to make paths straight for his kingdom. Even during Jesus' time when Jesus went around and he pronounced this in the book of Mark in chapter 3, this is what people said about him. When his own people in his own hometown heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. The man is out of his mind. In fact, in verse 31, it even tells us his family tries to go grab him. They're like, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are here. 
I'll tell you who my mom and brothers are. That's what Jesus says. I mean, he is either Lord or he is nuts. And what Mark does within this, this opening chapter is just a way of peppering for us the, the very stories that, that one, give us an invitation to the kingdom and, and two, give us the demonstration of this kingdom. When you look, I'm just going to just show us some highlight verses of this passage. I just want to look at just each story, just a couple of verses in each story up into to chapter two. But in verse 16, everyone that has a, a kingdom has to have people within the kingdom, right? And it tells us in verse 16, right after verse 15, where Jesus pronounced the kingdom and its arrival, the first words he speaks. He then says, as he's going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon being Peter, the brother of Simon casting a net in the sea, for there were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You know, one of the things I, I love about Jesus when you read his interaction with people is how he met them where they were. When he's talking to fishermen, he uses fishing illustrations. When he's talking to farmers, he uses farming illustrations. He meets people culturally where they are and the things that they are used to and calls them to something greater in him. And when you think about the fishermen, somebody has estimated that probably out of the 12 disciples, Jesus had seven of them most likely worked the trade as fishermen. Jesus doesn't pursue the, the high and mighty of society. He pursues the, the regular blue-collar worker. And you think of what it would take to, to demonstrate this kingdom and live out this kingdom and the struggles that, that this crowd would have to go against in following after Jesus because the mainstream society would reject him. The difficulty they would face, it makes so much sense that Jesus would choose fishermen used to difficulty in life and the struggle of working day in and day out. They would be perfect for pursuing lost souls and having courage and the ability to work together and patience and energy and stamina and, and faith and the tenacity to pursue after the Lord, even when it got difficult. Fishermen were the type of people that could not afford to be quitters or complainers. But if they pursued him, to do it with all of their heart. And so Jesus is giving the both in this kingdom the invitation and the demonstration of everything he, he's represented. And, and then it tells us going further in the story that Jesus then goes into a synagogue and he continues to call people. But at the same time while he's calling people, he, he demonstrates the power of this kingdom. And it says in verse 23, but then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. And Jesus, in verse 25, rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Talking about the demon in him. In verse 27, they were all amazed and he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so by what authority are you representing this kingdom? And Jesus is demonstrating that, that he pushes back the darkness, that he has power even over the spiritual realm. I don't, I don't want to freak us out this morning, but you think about this. Actually, I do. <laughs> I do want to freak us out this morning, but verse 23. I wonder how many times this guy had been worshiping in the synagogue. Regular attender. 
It wasn't until that he was presented with the truth that the spirit within him fought against it. Just a regular guy, indifferent, participating in worship. I don't want to make you skeptical about the person sitting beside you, but <laughs> you think about it, this guy was probably just a regular part of the synagogue life, just being there. And it wasn't until Jesus walks into the room that they realize, oh man, this guy is possessed. And Jesus demonstrating his kingdom. commands even the spirits and it tells us in the story that he he tells the spirit within this individual to to be quiet when jesus does his his ministry in the the opening chapters you're going to see that jesus often remarks to the people don't share this don't go around and proclaim this he tells the demons a few times not to do this why why did jesus want to remain hidden I know he didn't need Satan and his army to declare who he was for sure. But I think the reason that Jesus wanted people to remain silent when he performed some of these works or he made that request to them is one, the Jews had a misconception of what it came to, to Jesus and what he would represent in this world. I, I told you this last week, but, but they, they attributed the name Jesus Christ and Christ being the Messiah to Jesus. But Jesus never assumed the title of Messiah on himself. He allowed the people to pronounce that he was the Messiah, but he never assumed that title. And the reason is because when people associated the the word Messiah to an individual, they also assumed the kingdom of God. And with the kingdom of God, they assumed with that political revolution. And Jesus told him his kingdom was not of this world. And so when you had this misconception of the Messiah coming, it it prepared the people to, to ready themselves for battle. This political revolution were about to, was about to take place, one that would overthrow Rome and allow the Jewish people to rule and to reign. The second is this, I think that Jesus wanted to stifle the misconception of him is because the crowds began to follow him. You see this as the story unfolds that more and more gather around Jesus. I think in verse 45 it specifically talks about this. But more and more people gather around Jesus. And it continues to refer to them as crowds. But never disciples. They saw the healing work of Jesus as the end. But Jesus only did the healing work as a means to the end. Jesus' ultimate purpose in this healing was simply to to validate the message. It wasn't about the healing itself. It was a validation of the message that he represented of the kingdom and the reconciliation to the king. And so Jesus didn't want loads of people just pursuing him just because it was a circus show. Because he was Lord. And I think last, the Romans would think that Jesus was there to lead an insurrection. When they'd hear the pronouncement from the Jews who tried to continue to follow Messiahs, people that would try to claim this title, and Rome would have to come in and stifle it. That Jesus was just another Jew trying to lead another insurrection against the Roman people. And so Jesus wanted time to walk among his people and to teach his people, but not to, not to just create a crowd, but to, but to create followers after him and his kingdom. Then it tells us in verse 34. It tells us he healed Peter's mother. And in verse 34, he healed many who were ill with various diseases. 
And he continued to cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And Jesus is showing within this passage that it's not just over the spiritual world that he has power, but he has power over the physical world, the healing of sickness. And then in verse 35, In the demonstration of his kingdom, it tells us that Jesus also lived in relationship to the Father. His kingdom is is not just representing his power over the spiritual world and the physical world, but he communes in relationship. And this is what he's calling us to in relationship. To repent, be reconciled to God. The reason the kingdom in this fullness is not here is is the long-suffering patience of God. And Jesus is then demonstrating this relationship, verse 35, while hordes of people follow him. He finds the time to enjoy the relationship that he has with the Father. In verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And the disciples think they're going to continue. All the people that have now gathered because of what Jesus is doing, they're seeing this healing ministry as so attractional and it's it's what they're there for. And Jesus says this in verse 38. He said to them, let us go somewhere else today to other towns nearby so I might preach there also for that's what I came for. This demonstration of the kingdom isn't the end of itself. But simply the calling to something greater. And going there gives us just a few more stories. I want to highlight this one and one other, but it says this. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. This is the story that kind of gets you at least that comment of willing as it relates to Jesus and his kingdom you know the leper is not doubting that Jesus is able the statement is are you willing if you study society during the time of the leper um, what his life would have consisted of, it would have been isolated. He would have been a lonely individual. Anytime he walked around the crowd, even in this moment when he's walking around the crowd, the expectation of the law of the time is as he walked and moved through the crowd, he would have to consistently yell, unclean, I'm unclean, so the crowds around him could move away. He was distant. Lonely. Used to people being indifferent to him at best. And looking at Jesus and probably placing upon Jesus or emulating upon Jesus the expectation of the same treatment that he's always received from everyone else. It's not if you're able to take care of me, but if you're willing. So this question is a question of love. Lord, how low will you go? 
how much are you willing to serve as a suffering king? Is it at the depth of where I am? Can you meet me here? As king, does your love go that deep? Have you ever been there? To the end of your rope? I was reading um, an author the other day talking about the gospels and interacting with Jesus and he just said this, you know, after reading all the gospels, this is one thing I know about Jesus is that he's never one to ever turn away from the prayer of Lord help. If there's ever one prayer, Christ always answers. Lord help. So you see the magnitude of the kingdom, both in the physical and the spiritual realm. But in this act, you also see the demonstration of the kingdom at the level that it's willing to go to serve all people that recognize their need in him. God, are you willing? And it's if to say not by word, but by action. That's what I'm here for. And in verse 45, but the leper went out and began to proclaim. Jesus asked him not to proclaim for the reasons we talked about already. But he went out to proclaim anyway. He proclaimed it freely and to spread the news already to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. And then you have this story. So the first chapter, you see these peppering of stories, these short stories, just to illustrate verse 15 of the proclamation of the kingdom by demonstration and by invitation. And then from this point on, the stories somewhat tend to get a little bit longer in Jesus's interaction with people. Sometimes they are short, but other times they, they spell out just a little bit longer. And this is one of those stories because there is a shift here in what takes place. Because now Jesus has gone throughout and he's demonstrated this. And I would say if you compared this to other gospels, where we're at in the story of Mark is somewhere in John 4. So this is, this is not necessarily following things immediately as they happen, but this is kind of spreading out over time in Jesus's ministry. And in Mark chapter 2, it becomes the place where the religious leaders take a stand over Jesus. And part of the reason they take a stand is because of what Jesus does here. And what he's doing here is blasphemous in their eyes. But it's a demonstration of the greater purpose for what Christ came for. The healing isn't the end in itself. But a demonstration to the greater calling. And when you read in chapter 2. What you see is this paralytic man being carried by four of his friends and Jesus within a home teaching and it's so crowded that they can't get this man near Jesus. So they get him on the roof. I have no idea how that happens, but they get him up on this roof and they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down to Jesus. And Jesus heals him. And the religious leaders are angered by what Jesus does. But Jesus says this. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic son, before he heals him, he makes this statement. Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak this way, talking about Jesus? He is blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. And then it tells us, it's not on the screen, but it tells us in verse 10. Well, let me pick up in the end of verse 8 because it's all in red here. Jesus says to this group, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. So Jesus is saying, just so you know, I have the ability to forgive sins. I'm going to demonstrate it to you by giving this man also the ability to get up and take his pallet and go home. When I was in college, I had a professor who was training for the Olympics to be a pole vaulter, happened to get in a wreck. And he flipped over in a Jeep and he's paralyzed. But he still managed to pursue the Lord in his life um, and became a college professor. And he taught us through the Gospels in school. And he always stopped here at this part. He wanted us to point to the greater point of the kingdom. And they always tell us this, you know, when he first got injured, he would go to different things around the world where there would be people that claimed to be faith healers. And for the first part of his Christian life, he came to be a believer when he was injured. He said he would try to get to the front of these places where these people claimed to heal him and they would um, quickly usher him away. And he said, you know, one of the things that he found interesting, why he would drive around, is that at the same time, there was also a young girl that was doing the same thing. And they were, found themselves going around together. And it was this little girl just two years old. And she was burned all over her body from a fire. And her parents wanted her to experience healing. She had suffered some physical ailments from this. And, and he said he would always try to get to the front of these places. And they would never let him up front. They would always usher him away. And the same thing with this girl. And finally one day he said, forget this. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And he said one of the things that helped him reason through this is that he looked at this young lady. This little girl, every time going, trying to get to the front. And he just, it dawned on me, he said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with her. The only thing wrong in this moment are the people that continue to try to shove this girl up to this room where these people claim that they can heal. Jesus loves her where she is. Jesus loves me where I am. His kingdom is greater. His kingdom goes beyond our pain. It meets us where we are. You know, in this moment, Jesus demonstrated that through physical healing of this individual. But what Jesus is trying to point to is something greater. There's something greater. And the Pharisees are expressing it, or the scribes are expressing it in their comment. When they acknowledge that Jesus, how in the world can you forgive sins? And this is the way it works in our lives. When someone wrongs you, I can attempt to forgive them all day long, but that's never going to reconcile that relationship. The one who has to forgive to reconcile the relationship is the one who's been wronged against. And when it comes to God, The Bible tells us that we're contrary to that kingdom. We've offended the king. 
And so by Jesus offering the forgiveness to God and reconciliation, what he's also demonstrating is his deity. Because the only one that can ever forgive you for for coming against God and sinning against God is God. And what Jesus is declaring in this statement And the culmination of these stories as they are demonstrating is that the greater message in all of this isn't the act of healing itself. But the reconciliation we receive to our king. You see what Jesus is doing in this story. Jesus is making a proclamation of a kingdom. He's, He's liar, he's lunatic, or he's lord. And he's given the invitation to us to to participate. It's not about being a a spectator, but a a participator. He he meets people where they are and he invites them in. He meets them crippled and sick and hurting and broken to the point of the leopard asking the question, God, how, how deep does your kingdom go? He goes to the disciples and he calls them and he lives life with them. What Jesus and his kingdom calls us to his people. Jesus is after people. If there's anything we want to be known about at ABC, it's our, our love for people. It's demonstrated by the example of, of Jesus. It doesn't call us to carry out programs. Jesus didn't create programs. But rather, there's, there's nothing against programs, but the whole purpose of anything that we ever do as a church, the, the driving force behind all of that is the heart of the individual. What we want to be known about as a church is the way we meet people where they are as Jesus has demonstrated and love them as Jesus loves them and calls them as Jesus would call them to him. Because God calls us Be a part of his kingdom. To live out this kingdom on mission. This kingdom that's always moving forward in Jesus. This kingdom that's piercing the darkness. Always reaching people. Always on mission. Seeing it demonstrated in Christ who is full of compassion and care. God showing his care to all those that he interacts with, calling us as people representing his kingdom to care for those, to to say, what about your neighbor? What about your friend? What about your spouse? What about the people next to you? That that the pursuit of his kingdom is the reconciliation to the king. And to recognize that in all the things we face are more than conquerors. As Romans says, it's why in hardship we do not give up. This kingdom is bigger than our problems. It's, it's bigger than our pain. And when you look at the demonstration of this kingdom in the first couple of chapters, there are such close parallels to where we are as people. Jesus in a place where people are religiously indifferent, indifferent to him. And he's just working with just a small group of people that follow him and are reaching to him. Sharing this kingdom so that it would become contagious in the lives of those around him. Think about where you are. 
how God can use you in this world. The effect that God can have on you and through you when he uses you. That we as a people may be small. We're a people that just love him, want to know him, spend time with him, and just share the glory of who he is with those around us. I hope you see this morning just the extent of that kingdom as it's demonstrated. Spiritually conquered, which is why Jesus gives us life in the hereafter. Physically conquered in him, ultimately all things being restored under Christ. To the depth that it goes and being able to love all people and the reason behind all of it. It's because of the forgiveness that he can offer No one can forgive you the sins you've brought against God unless it be God alone. And Jesus and his kingdom and all things, what he brings to us is the reconciliation toward him that we could live life in his kingdom forever. Both the demonstration and the invitation. Jesus leaves no room. He's either crazy or he's Lord. But that invitation rests on all of our lives. What are you going to do with it? This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.